You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. Have you been naughty or nice? If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Consider the fairy lights. There's a reason we hang strings of fairy lights this time of year. And that is their name, by the way. That's what they're called, fairy lights. And if you don't believe me, go search fairy lights on Amazon. But please don't buy your fairy lights on Amazon. Buy artisan small batch fairy lights from your local mom and pop fairy light shop, like we did. We actually bought our LED fairy lights on Amazon. Anyway, there's a reason we hang strings of fairy lights this time of year. And there's a reason we put them on our fire escapes and on the bushes and our front yards and not in our bedrooms or basements. There's a reason we put our Christmas trees and menorahs in our front room windows. Hell, there's a reason why the CTA, the Chicago Transit Authority, puts lights on a train and sends it all over the city on the elevated tracks and not through the subways. It's the same reason ancient peoples built bonfires on hilltops on the longest, darkest night of the year. We put lights in our windows and on our elevated trains. We put our Christmas trees and menorahs in our front room windows to send a message to our friends and neighbors and strangers, to our social solar systems, a message that says better days, brighter days are coming. You just got to hold on. There's a lot we are holding on for as 2020 comes to an end. We're holding on for sunnier days. We're holding on for a new president. We're holding on for immunity. We're holding on and continuing to wear our masks as more and more people get vaccinated. We know there are still dark days ahead, politically, biologically, cosmically. And I'm sure I don't need to tell you this, but I'm going to say it anyway. It has been a hell of a year and we've got more hell to get through. But the lights remind us that we're all in this together We can, of course, do more than hang lights. I do think the lights help. I think both putting them up and seeing them meet deep-seated human needs. But we can help out in other ways. People need more than light. People can't eat light. We just made a donation to Northwest Harvest, which supports food banks all over the Pacific Northwest, where we live. If you're in a position to donate, particularly to a food bank right now where you live, if you can help, please do. And if you need help, please ask. Give someone the gift of being the light you needed to see. Okay, coming up on today's show, comedian, actress, author, and newly minted podcaster Sarah Silverman comes back on the show. We talk about life, love, being friends with your exes, and starting a podcast. We talk on the micro, and Sarah sticks around for the Magnum to answer some of your sex questions with me. If you're not already a subscriber to the Magnum Lovecast, this would be a good week to subscribe at savagelovecast.com. Twice as much show, more guests, more Sarah, more questions, and no ads. And the Lovecast makes a great gift. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, I have a success story for you. My partner has a niche kink for all of your curious listeners. It's drool and spit. But he has trouble finding porn within that realm and to his liking because it's often mixed with piss play and other things that aren't really to his taste. And it's just straight drool and he has a hard time finding it. So I try to provide him with the occasional homemade porn of me drooling in various sexual scenarios so he can build his own personal collection. 
So one night when we were together, I asked him if he wanted to film me on his phone while I drooled and while I also got myself off. And this was not a hard pitch to sell him. <laughs> so he moved to the end of the bed and he filmed me as I pleasured myself and drooled while he slowly jacked himself off while recording. We were positioned perfectly so we could both watch each other's masturbation, which was really hot, making eye contact and then moving our eyes back to other various parts of each other's bodies. After I had climaxed, I asked him how the video turned out and he asked if I wanted to watch it together, which was also not a hard sell. So he moved back up to the top of the bed and we cuddled up next to each other and watched while I took a turn, slowly giving him a nice hand job. And after we watched me finish climaxing on screen, we put the phone down and he gave me a few more orgasms in various ways before he took his own turn climaxing himself. So we have a lot of great sex, but this was definitely a uniquely and memorable moment. Thank you for calling and sharing your sex success story. We like to start each week's show with someone's success story before we get to everyone's problems. If you want to share your success story, give us a call 206-302-2064 and we might open next week's Lovecast with your story. Hi, Dan. Long-term listener here. Uh, gay, 28-year-old male living in Washington, D.C. Recently, a guy that I've been interested in since 2016, actually, let me know after months and months and months of us chatting back and forth and trying to make plans to have our first date and hang out and try to establish a relationship together that he had tested positive for herpes. Now, I'm very sex positive. I don't shame people for STIs, but my immediate thought was, oh no, what am I going to do now? I'm really interested in this guy. I want to date this guy. I want to fuck this guy. But he has herpes. And as we all know, once you get herpes, you have it for the rest of your life. If you were me, what would you do next? I've already told him, I don't judge you. I'm okay with this. But deep down, I'm really concerned because I don't want to contract herpes and then let's say our relationship doesn't work out and then I have to live with that the rest of my life, disclosing it to future partners and potentially negatively affecting my love life. If I were you, here's what I would do. I would dig into the Savage Love archives and look for every episode we've ever done with a medical expert, a guest expert from Planned Parenthood where we talked extensively about herpes, which in most cases in the lives of most people who are infected is really not that big a deal. A minor skin condition. Unpleasant when there's a breakout, particularly unpleasant usually at the first breakout. But most people who have herpes don't know they have it. That's how minor an issue herpes often is in the lives of most people who are afflicted with the scarlet H. So I would encourage you just to calm down or as I said, just dig into the archives, listen to those shows that we've done with doctors from Planned Parenthood and take a deep breath. You're an openly gay man in Washington, D.C., which is a city crawling with homos. In the last four years as a sexually active gay man in Washington, D.C., I ask you this in a sex-positive, slut-positive way. How many guys have you slept with since 2016 when you first became interested in this guy? If you are like most out sexually active gay men in Washington, D.C., 
over the last four years, single out sexually active gay men in Washington, D.C., perhaps even partnered out gay sexually active men in Washington, D.C. You probably slept with more than five other guys, more than 10 other guys, more than 20, 25, 30. What is your body count, as the kids say? Statistically speaking, if you've gone to bed with, say, 10, 20 guys, you have crawled into bed with numerous men who have herpes, who had it and didn't know it, or who had it and didn't disclose to you that they had it. It seems to me that you're at less of a risk of contracting herpes from this guy, and you may have already been exposed to herpes multiple times. You may already have herpes, even if you've never had an outbreak or an outbreak that you noticed. But it seems to me you are at less of a risk from this guy, particularly if he's on meds, particularly if you're planning to use condoms initially at first when you start getting together, you are less of a risk from this guy than you were from those other guys, other guys that you have almost certainly slept with who had herpes and didn't tell you because they didn't know or didn't tell you because they feared exactly this, this kind of rejection, this fear of herpes that exists out of all proportion to the impact herpes has on the lives of most people who have it. There are very effective treatments that can really limit or eliminate any chance of an outbreak should you contract herpes. And if he's on those meds, the odds that he will infect you, particularly if you're using condoms, are very low. If you like this guy, I think you should go out with him. Obviously, he's comfortable having this conversation or he's trying to get comfortable having this conversation. So I'd encourage you to ask him about the frequency and severity of his outbreaks. I would encourage you to ask him what medications, if any, he's taking to suppress his outbreaks and make him less infectious to his sex partners and what his plans are or intentions are or preferences are around condoms and other safe sex practices. But I wouldn't not date this guy if I were you. I would date this guy. I would see this guy. The fact that he was honest with you about this speaks well of him. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. One of my best friends is dating a new man, and my friend has what I consider to be a nice job. He, you know, he's definitely financially secure. He lives alone in a big metro area, and he can generally do all of the things that he wants to do. His new partner is a doctor. And he likes the nice things in life. He likes to go for expensive dinners. In my friend's words, it's upwards of $60 every time they go eat. He likes to go on spa retreats, vacations. And while my friend wants to keep up with those things, he's also, of course, concerned about his financial situation and being able to keep up with that. He wants to be able to do these things with his partner, but I think that he's worried about bringing up the fact that he can't really afford to do this on a weekly basis. He thinks it's a charming part of his new partner's personality, and it's understandable that he likes to you know, spend time and money on experiences, although I understand the, the need for frugality. So my question to you, gang, is how does my friend have this conversation about not spending so much money and how does he get himself to a place where he can feel secure with the 
income discrepancy. I don't have as much disposable income as you do. That's what your friend needs to say to his new doctor boyfriend. Your friend fears saying that to your new doctor boyfriend. Fears addressing that directly for fear of what? For fear of rejection. For fear that the doctor might balk at dating someone who can't keep up with him financially, who can't eat out as often as he would like. But this is an instance where someone tells someone one thing about them and that other person's reaction tells that person everything they need to know about the person that they're dating. If the doctor is a total fucking towering asshole about this, when your friend says, I can't afford to eat out as often as you do, your friend shouldn't want to continue to see this guy. It may be that the doctor is just a little dense and a little clueless and didn't realize that he was bankrupting your friend by dragging him to expensive restaurants where they would split the bill. But if he enjoys your friend's company, once he realizes he can't continue to do that, that means fewer meals out in super expensive restaurants if they want to go out together and split the check evenly. Or the doctor who has more means picks up the check, treats your friend. And your friend holds up his end of the deal emotionally, socially by cooking meals occasionally on date night for his new doctor boyfriend. When there is a significant income discrepancy and the person who makes a lot more money likes the finer things in life and they're dating someone who doesn't have as much money, they need to pick up the check. They need to pay for that other person to come along. If they don't want to pay, if they don't want to pick up the check or a larger percentage of the check, perhaps based on income, they should date someone who makes as much money as they do or more and not risk dating someone who makes less money than they do. But your friend, he just needs to disinhibit here and he needs to not fear this guy's rejection over this issue and he needs to get to a place where instead of you know fearing rejection, if he's honest with this guy about not being able to keep up financially, he's poised to end this relationship if this guy has an unkind, entitled reaction when he tells him that he can't eat out in these super expensive restaurants or go to these crazy expensive spas as often as his doctor boyfriend does, as his boyfriend gets to. Because he can't afford it. So tell your friend from me to speak up and then make a decision. Does doctor boyfriend has a kind, compassionate reaction, recognizes that perhaps he's been a little clueless or thoughtless. Great. He should keep seeing him. This doctor boyfriend is a towering, snotty asshole about it. He should break up with him immediately. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old gay man living in the Midwest. I've been dating a guy for about nine months and it's been going great. However... The giant elephant in the room is that he may have to relocate for work. He's part of a program where he is relocated to different offices around the country. That's actually the reason why he came to the city. He gets to rank where he wants to go with the possibility of even staying here. However, it's ultimately up to the company where he will go. He finds out where he will go in six months and but won't have to move for a year. My question to you is, how do you know when you're ready to move for your partner? I have honestly never considered living in this city. I was born and raised here and all my friends and family are here. It seems a little premature to be talking about it, having only been together nine months and never having lived together. But really, if I were to relocate, I would have to start making arrangements with my work and whatnot fairly soon. Also, if I knew I, wouldn't, I was not going to be ready to relocate in six months or a year, I also don't want to waste our times and kind of just want to pull the plug. 
I don't know. I guess what I'm asking you is, how do you know when it's right to move for your partner? You described this possible move that your boyfriend might have to make as the elephant in the room. Seems to me that you're making this into an elephant, you're blowing this up into an elephant, that you're inflating whatever it is that's in the room and calling it an elephant after it gets big enough. He might not have to move. He could end up staying right where you are, right where you two met, right where your family and friends still are. And it's going to be six months till he finds out if he has to move. And then a year from now, before he has to move, that's a long time when you're talking about a relationship that's only nine months old. And you may at nine months not feel ready about moving with him if he should have to move. And at a year and a half, be sure that moving with him and for him would be something that you were anxious to do, ready to do, something you wanted to do. So unless you're casting around looking for an excuse to end this relationship now, unless you want out of it, and this is your excuse to end it, don't make the decision now that you don't have to make now. Make it later. And in the same way, early in a relationship, it can feel premature to say I love you, but not premature to acknowledge that you might be feeling like you want to say that. It's not premature to talk about moving right now with him, but it's premature to make any decision. You don't have to make a decision now. Something might come up in the next couple of months that ends the relationship where you decide you don't want to be with him, even if he was going to stay put for the rest of his life. So stop gaming this out. Stop looking a year into the future and making predictions about how you're going to feel or whether or not you're even going to be with this guy. And you don't need to start making preparations to move with him. If a year from now he has to move and you still want to be with him, you can at that point begin to make the preparations with your work for you to move and then do the long distance thing for six months. Where you see problems that have to be addressed and resolved right now, I see things that you can address and perhaps resolve a year from now, a year and a half from now, if you're still with him a year and a half from now. So don't panic right now. Just enjoy your new relationship. And then six months or a year from now, you can make a decision about whether you want to follow him, whether you want to do the long distance thing for six months or a year or do the long distance thing indefinitely until his company moves him again and perhaps possibly moves him back to where you are. Hi, Dan. I'm a bisexual woman in her 30s living on the West Coast. I'm calling after hearing a few previous caller stories in the past few weeks that sound similar to mine, and I was wondering what further advice you could give. My husband and I have been together for over 16 years, married for 10, and with one young child. When we first met, he was fairly slim, and I was a little overweight, but he seemed not to mind. Fast forward 10 years, and we had both gotten a little bit bigger, so I took it upon myself to really get into fitness and exercise, and I lost about 30 pounds. My husband also lost a little bit, but not as much. I'd say my aesthetic goal was similar to uh, an Instagram fitness influencer, lean but not competitive bodybuilding type lean. Granted, at my leanest, I was actually never close to achieving this body goal, but I was feeling pretty good about my body type at that point. But my husband and I started having issues in our relationship, and turns out he hated my newfound love of diet and exercise. He finally admitted to me that he no longer found me attractive, which just crushed my self-esteem. It got to the point where even mentioning how I had plans to go to the gym or do some yoga made him get visibly upset. Keep in mind that the concern that he had was never about me developing an eating disorder or being unhealthy in any way, but just that I was spending too much time at the gym and he didn't like how I looked as a result. 
we ended up going to couples counseling over it, and the therapist came up with a quote-unquote compromise where he would work out a little bit more, and I would work out a little bit less. Shortly after I became pregnant with our son, it was pretty obvious that my husband was really into my big pregnancy belly and the belly that remained after I gave birth. He was constantly telling, how sex, telling me how sexy it was, how sexy I was, and so on. During sex, he would reach down and grab my belly or squeeze my sides to help him finish. And while we're cutting, cuddling on the couch, instead of hugging or holding hands, he'll reach down and hold my belly. I'm really starting to think that he has a belly fetish. But the problem is that during shelter in place, I've started exercising more since I'm no longer having to commute and I've managed to lose more, but not all of the baby weight that I had kept on to. And it's noticeable sometimes how affected he is by it. Sometimes he'll give my belly a squeeze, but more like a test to see how fat is still there. And he feels distant or off if he seemingly doesn't like the results. I'm not sure if this is me projecting due to the issues that we've had before or if I'm analyzing the situation correctly, but I get really frustrated because I feel like he can't be attracted to me unless I remain fat, which is antithetical to my own goals. The way he focuses so much on my belly makes me feel really weird and conflicted about my body. Like he can only be attracted to one part of me or one specific body shape, and if I'm not that shape, then our sex life and emotional connection fall apart. And it's certainly possible that I'll never reach my pre-pregnancy weight or the body type I want, especially as we're, having, uh, we're planning to have more children in the future, but that I can't even try without risking my marriage is angering and very demoralizing. I'm not even sure how to satisfy his belly fetish if I no longer have a belly. Your husband needed to lay this kink card down on the table before you got married, before you had kids. He liked your belly. He liked your body as it was when you met, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But if he has a partialism fetish, partialism is a word that they use to describe someone who has a foot fetish, somebody who has a a hand fetish, a particular part of the body really turns them on in a non-normative part, not a part of the body that most other people find attractive. And if a belly, specifically a belly and a kind of roundish belly is something that he needs in a partner to respond sexually at all. And the disappearance of a belly that had been there is going to result in him withholding his affections or not even be able to respond sexually. That's something that you kind of sort of had a right to know about him and about your belly before you married him, before you had a baby with him and you're planning to have another baby with him. So while it's tempting to say that in the long run, this is a problem that may resolve itself because You're going to have a big pregnancy belly again. You're going to have baby weight to lose again. There are going to be times in your life when you have a belly. And as we age, we tend to get bellies that stick around forever. You're always going to know in the back of your head that your husband's sexual affections are really conditioned upon your body looking a very particular way. And the question then becomes, is that okay with you? Is accepting his affections under those conditions, with those conditions, is it going to throw you out of sex? Is it going to make you feel objectified? That he doesn't love you for you. He doesn't sexually respond to all of what you bring to the table, not just your belly or the fat on your thighs, but all of you. And so when your belly is flat and when your thighs are skinnier, he's not into you. And even when your belly is fat and your thighs are beefier, even when you're thicker, are you going to be able to enjoy his sexual attentions with that 
sort of rattling around in the back of your mind during sex. Only you can answer that question to any satisfaction for yourself. Will you be able to suspend your disbelief and enjoy his sexual attentions knowing that they're so conditional? This is a really interesting question because usually it's the opposite. Usually somebody who has a problem with their partner's size or a change in their partner's size, it's about their partner getting bigger or their partner aging and sort of natural changes that happen to all of our bodies over time. And then they stop being able to respond sexually or cruelly withhold their sexual attentions in an effort to manipulate their partner into dieting and exercise. And here you are in really kind of a bizarro world parallel, you know, a, a negative image of this where you're being manipulated by your husband's withholding ways into not dieting and not exercising. There are a lot of women out there who listen to your question who probably thought, I wish I was in her position. But the irony is that women whose husbands are trying to manipulate them into dieting and exercise are sort of in the same position you're in. You have a manipulative withholding partner who wants you to look a very particular way and wants to be in a long-term open-ended relationship with you that involves children and many, many decades and over time bodies change. And usually bodies change by getting a little bit bigger and less fit. Your body has changed by getting slimmer and more fit. That change, knowing what we know about the way bodies change over time, unlikely to be permanent. But even when you're bigger again, even when your body is closer to what it was when you first met your husband and it pleases him more, are you going to be all right with that? Is that going to weigh on you? If the answer is yes, that's going to weigh on you. Yes, that's unacceptable. Well, then get in a time machine. Don't have that baby. Don't have another baby. If the answer is no, that that's not going to weigh on you and you can live with it. All right, then stay, have that next baby. Enjoy your husband's enthusiastic attentions. When you have a pregnancy belly again, maybe take a little bit more time losing the post pregnancy weight next time. And if there comes a time in your life when you're done with the dieting and exercise, well, then Yahtzee, you know that your husband is going to be really excited about that. But in the interim, it is your body and you get to do what you want with it. But when you have a partner doing what you want with your body can impact how your partner feels about you. You know, we are objects. We are attracted to our partners almost invariably first as objects, as visual things, as mass that takes up space. And I think there's a difference between gradual changes that happen over time and changes that we make a decision to actively make. And if you're aware that the changes you're making are something that are going to result in your partner being less attracted to you, maybe that's something you have to take responsibility for. But what's unfair about your particular situation is your husband didn't make this clear to you that your belly was something that he loved and was really crucial to his ability to respond to you sexually. <sighs> you need to go to a different couples counselor, I think, because even if you both know that when you don't have a belly, he's less attracted to you, Withholding affection because of the way you look now, that's cruel. That's got to stop. You can live with perhaps the awareness and stuff it down the memory hole and suspend your disbelief to a certain extent uh, about maybe sex being less enjoyable for him when you don't have the belly that you sometimes have. But you can't live with a man who withholds affection in an attempt to manipulate you. 
You need to separate those two things. He needs to be able to separate those two things. Anyway, just want to affirm the principle that your body is yours. His body is his. We all get to do with our bodies what we want to do with our bodies. Our partners should celebrate our bodies and accept our bodies even as they change, whether that means we're getting bigger, whether that means we're getting fitter, whether that means we're getting older. Nobody has the option of getting younger, unfortunately. And people really, you need to lay your kink cards down on the table before you propose to someone, before you marry someone, and certainly, please God, before you scramble your DNA together with someone. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with comedian, actress, and now podcaster. Welcome back to the show, host of the Sarah Silverman podcast, Sarah Silverman. Hey, Sarah, congratulations on your new podcast. I've been binging it and loving it. Uh, It's a terrific medium for your sensibilities, your comic sensibilities. Congratulations. Welcome to the podcast side. Dan, thank you so much. I'm having a lot of fun. So for people who haven't yet had a chance to check it out and haven't heard about it, what are you doing with your podcast? What are they going to find there? Pretty much it's um, I solicit voicemails, much like uh, somebody I know. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) I kind of, uh, the night before, we pick a few and um, to play. And I just kind of let that be the trajectory of the show. And it seems to go as quickly as, you know, you think you have nothing to say in therapy. And then the next thing you know, that your 50 minutes are up. <laughs> but, oh my God. Um, <laughs> oh my God, that's so true. Or nothing to say in the, in my experience, the confessional when I was a Catholic school kid. And then, Oh my gosh. You know, six hours later, you're still there. Yeah. <laughs> A thousand Hail Marys later. <laughs> yeah, right. I sometimes fantasize about going back to confession because I haven't been to confession for 30 years. And forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been 30 years from my last confession. Hope you packed a lunch because <laughs> we're going to be here for a while. <laughs> you know, uh, Bill, uh, Bill Maher used to have a classic joke about being uh, half Catholic, half Jewish, and he'd go to confession and say, forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. I, I'm sure you know my lawyer, Mr. Goldberg. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the, the, the show, it's different. Is it different than doing stand up? Very different, um, for me, because I mean, although it kind of fills the same void, it, uh, you know, with stand up, I'm, I'm, I think I give off a sense of, um, you know, I'm, uh, hopefully you're in the moment when you do stand up, but in terms of my material, I'm a very slow, intricate honer over a long period of time. And the thing I love about the podcast that's so different from what I do in stand-up is, and the frustrating thing as well, is that it's so immediate, so loose, so messy. And, you know, I'll listen back and go, oh, I could have said that so much clearer, so much cleaner, you know, so much less circumlocutive. Mm -hmm. Gee, Mm -hmm. that's not a word. But, you know, um, I, I, you know, I would I, because over time with comedy, I economize and economize and boil things down. And every little word is kind of given thought. It brings up something funny about audience expectations, because, you know, when you go to a comedy club or you, you watch a stand up uh, comedian special on Netflix or HBO, you want polished and tight. But the audience that comes to a podcast kind of wants something looser and more informal and conversational. They want that messy quality. I've I've listened to podcasts that are really polished, that are really scripted, and I always find them off-putting. But if I watch, you know, a stand-up special and it's a digressive mass and not very funny, not tight, I I, I don't like it. 
Yeah, I mean, you can even tell with your calls, your you know, yours yeah. and, and mine as well, when um, people have written down exactly what they want to say and just kind of read it as opposed to when they call in and really just like talk from their core, you know, it's different. I wanted to ask you about some of your political activism. Um, I, I loved your, your show. I love you America and I miss it. Um, oh, and, and on it, you did a lot of reaching out to sort of red state people, uh, Trumpy people. Um, mm-hmm. And you made these personal connections and showed them Hollywood liberals aren't monsters and uh, showed fans of Hollywood liberals uh, that they aren't monsters and it's great content, but does, does it work? Do you think it works? Do you think anyone that you've had these interactions with and made these connections with voted any differently in November? Gee, I don't know, but possibly I, I at the very least left them more open and I left more open and listen, I'm not open to Trumpism, you know, but <laughs> I just have always seen a a big difference between, you know, and I've said this a lot, the liars and the lied to, Mm. you know, I, I have no time, patience or space in my heart for liars. You know, I, I would, if they didn't uh, affect people's lives and make decisions on behalf of so many people based on their own unexamined lives. Right. But for citizens just going about their own albeit unexamined lives, I have more compassion and I feel more connected to. And, you know, putting on that show, you know, I put them in a position where they were my host, where I was in their hands. I was in their space. I didn't know anyone around me. I had no source of food unless they fed me. You know what I mean? Like it was, and when somebody now is in a position to take care of you, they can love you. You know what I mean? And, uh, and I felt the same way, you know, I didn't leave any of those people feeling anything but care, you know, mm-hmm. you exchange gesture, you know, this is real, this is different from the podcast, but this is, you know, it was more about like, we found that we were exchanging gestures of care to use uh, Mr. Rogers speak, you know, and it, it changes everything. I mean, when you're face to face with someone, it's just totally different. But the hope is know? it changes how they vote. Like, like that's at the base of it. You know, there's been all this discourse on the left since Trump's victory four years ago that we need to reach out. We need to understand blah, blah, blah. They never need to reach out. They never need to understand. We need to reach out. We need to understand. And I am all for compassion. I'm all for connection. But just sometimes I wonder about the utility of it. I, I, I've had interactions with real conservatives. Like I've done some reporting. I followed Mike Huckabee around in 2008 and I had these interactions with people who were so nice to me and, and and like we bonded over stuff. Like I remember talking to this one woman about our kids, right? And Uh, she could set aside the like cocksucker thing, but the parent thing, um, you know, the parent thing obscured the cocksucker thing long enough for us to really get along. But you know, at the end of the day, because I did circle back and and check in, you know, and then my visit there in Arkansas, she still thought I should be locked up. She still thought I shouldn't be allowed to oh. marry. She still thought my kid should be taken away from me. Oh. Uh, more, but more in sorrow now than in anger, but still. And I, you know, sometimes I'm just like, 
does it do any good or should we all, you know, just stop reaching out, stop bothering and just get out there and register voters who might agree with us a la Stacey Abrams in Georgia? Well, of course. I mean, if you're deciding between one or the other, yeah, go work, you know, work with Stacey Abrams. I, if you have the capacity to do both or, if you, you know what I mean? Do both. And nobody's listen. It's kind of like um, with Black Lives Matter, the kind of thing of like um, of 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 uh, not expecting people of color to explain to you mm-hmm. their their existence and what their lives are like and what you know. It's like Google it, read a book, you know that kind of thing. But it is a it is a gesture of care to say, all right, yeah, no, this is what it's like, or we you know, just taking that example. You know, it's it's just above expectations kindness. It's, it can't be expected. But I do think, you know, and you say, well, we're supposed to reach out, but they're not. Yeah, we, we don't have to. No, you're, no, you're not beholden to do any of those things. But I believe there are benefits to doing it if you have the space for it. And I think it it even creates more space. I, I completely agree with you. You know, I, I reject folks who say I shouldn't have to explain or not, I reject, I, you know, I, I sometimes argue with folks who say, you know, I shouldn't have to explain gay stuff to you. You should go do the route. I'm like, no, I shouldn't have to explain what being trans is about to you. Well, actually, it might benefit you as a trans person to explain what being trans is about because telling people to do homework, that's not going to, that, that, there's no progress that's, that's going to be made there. And who knows, maybe yeah. that woman that I reconnected with uh, like six months later, uh, hadn't changed her position on whether I should be thrown in jail where the gay sex stops. But uh, maybe, yeah, right. <laughs> maybe two, three years later, she came around. Maybe you planted a seed. Just like our families, you know, we come out to our families uh, if we're queer and they might not react the way we'd hoped initially. Maybe it might take a year or two for them to come around. But people can come around, can ultimately resolve their cognitive dissonance around what they've been taught to believe yeah. about you and what they're actually going to think going forward. Right. There are not guarantees, but it's, you know, you have to decide if it's worth it. I mean, just like with our parents or, you know, anything in, in what we learn as we get older is, you know, we can't necessarily change other people. We have to just change ourselves. So you need to just not be gay. No. So, um, <laughs> you know, like, Whether it's changing your expectations of others or, you know, stopping setting yourself up for disappointment, you know, with with friends or with family, it's the same thing, you know, but to at least understand that whether we like it or not, we're all connected, you know, and that can be, you know, a good thing. And it might not. Speaking of connections, um, I want to kind of shift gears and talk about some stuff that comes up on my dumb podcast a lot. You're really public uh, about doing something. You're really public about having done something. I'm always encouraging people to do. Uh, and I'm not talking about pegging. I'm talking about being friends with an ex. <laughs> uh, Go on, sorry. <laughs> you're talking about being friends with an ex. I'm very pro-pegging if people want to peg, but I'm not a pegging evangelist. I don't think sure. people who don't want to peg should peg. But you're friends with an ex, with Jimmy Kimmel. People often have a hard time sticking the dismount there being friends with an ex after the relationship or circling back and becoming friendly or being friends, you know, at some point in the future, even if you can't hang out for a while, how did you do it? And what advice do you have for people who want to be friends with an ex? Uh, you know, I, uh, Silverman girls just, 
always keep their exes. I don't really understand how you stop loving someone, you know, unless it was like really, really dark stuff, you know, but it just kind of changes. I mean, you know, Jimmy's like a brother to me, but yeah, I, I, do I have frustrations, anger, bitternesses? I'm sure, you know, but when I think of him or if I see him pop up on TV, I just go, oh, you know, I mean, I don't, I, I'm, I, I think the key is, uh, being responsible for your happiness right now, you know, and, you know, I mean, like Jimmy is, uh, you know, I mean, we've, we've been not together much longer than we were together. And it was, a, it was for me, a, I, yeah, I think for both of us a big, you know, relationship, but, um, you know, it, what you do, I think is you take your lessons from the relationship. You, you try to become really aware of the things you don't want to repeat from it. And it doesn't have to be uh, necessarily about blame as about like how you are going to change moving forward. But I mean, I would say like all of my exes and there's a lot, you know, um, I adore, you know, I mean, um, I have good taste. I like uh, these people, you know, I mean, listen, our our regular friends are people who have been awful in relationships, good in relationships, you know, and we love them anyway. You know, I mean, we're not a monolith. Well, think about family. Yeah, exactly. Like, like what you said about, you know, is there still some bitterness? Is there still some anger, some frustration? Of course there is. And then people yeah. will say, well, I can't be friends with my ex because I have some bitterness, anger, and frustration. And yet I think of my siblings. I think of my parents. Like there's always some bitter angerness or frustration, but I still love them. You're stuck with your parents and siblings in a way, perhaps with their family. They're not stuck right. with your exes. You can, I mean, there are some people who have to, you know, shove toxic family members out of their life forever, but most people sort of like make do and like focus on what's good and positive. And if you can do that with an ex, and of course, nothing about what I'm saying or what you just said, Sarah, applies to emotionally, physically abusive exes or toxic narcissists or anything else like that. There are certainly people who have to be shown the door and never allowed back in your life. 100%. But if there was love and you grew, even if the ending was painful, like maybe you can, even if you don't want to be around them, appreciate them if you're a better person for having been in a relationship with them. And I always think it's a good sign. I mean, this is something I started writing about sex and relationships 30 years ago, and I was always sort of flabbergasted by in straight land was this idea you could never be friends with an ex. And it was a terrible sign if your ex was, or the someone you were thinking about dating was friendly with their exes. And I always thought that was a great yeah. sign. And in gay land, we don't have the luxury of 95% of the population to burn through for relationships or friends. <laughs> right. So we tend to be very friendly with our exes. We, often we hook up with our exes or hook our friend, exes up with other exes. Um, yeah, well, I mean, just like in the, it, how it's a smaller community, it's like that in comedy. I mean, you know, uh, so many comedians date comedians. I mean, I think more women date comedians. You know, I think male comedians don't, uh, in the heterosexual sexual world, anyway, um, I, you know, I, I think there are a lot of guy comics that are just as happy dating a fan from the audience or a waitress. And, you know, a waitress isn't all one, just a waitress. You know, I don't mean to mm. belittle that. But whereas, like, I think women tend to be more attracted to peers or people they even, you know, look up to. Or, you know, a woman with greatness often wants a partner with greatness, but a man with greatness doesn't necessarily require a, 
a partner with greatness. <laughs> that, I find yeah, that always, can be a, not always, not always. That know. can be a problem, but it's not just men who do that. Like I hear from women who are very you know professional, very accomplished, make a lot of money, who won't date somebody who isn't at least as successful or more successful than they right. are. And then they bemoan the fact that they're alone, but they won't date the waiter. They won't date, you know, the guy who works in the grocery store. Uh, And I think we should be open to that kind of cross-class, cross-educational. Well, it's like, what is success? Like if a guy works in a grocery store and lives this, the life he, you know, he he works in order to uh, fund the life he wants. And, you know, and besides that, he just loves whatever, you know. The, like the joys of uh, gross national happiness over, you know, gross yes. national wealth. Absolutely. Um, we have some calls. Uh, I want to throw a couple of my callers at you and uh, let you give some sex okay. advice. Are you game? Yes. So many years ago, when me and everyone I knew were pursuing acting, I slept with this friend of mine. We were coworkers. He pursued me. It was a fine experience but then afterwards it was not fine because he just flipped on me he got cold he would set up dates with me that I was kind of excited for and then he would flake on them in like really shady ways and it even got to the point where he would talk about pursuing other women in front of my friends so bad behavior and kind of hurtful I thought I was over it. I am like 99% over it, but it just was mean. Fast forward to now, and my current partner and I are watching this major network TV show, and that guy pops up on screen opposite some really cool actors, and he is doing an unfaultable acting job, and he looks good, and it killed me. So my question is, what do you do when someone you know and had a not-so-great experience with starts getting a little bit famous and, worst-case scenario, starts just popping up everywhere? Like, what do you, what is the inner chat you have to have to not let that stall your day? And second part of the question is, why do not nice people get some super cool and viable things. Have you ever had this experience? Have you ever seen someone on TV that you had a bad time with, bad interaction (laughs) with, and you were just like, grrr? Yeah. To me, this sounds kind of similar, which is like auditioning for something I really wanted and then not getting it and just not wanting to then watch it when it comes out. You know, like just, and and the reason why I compare it, because you go, well, one's about love. This doesn't really sound like that. This sounds like, and we all struggle with this. This isn't like, um, it sounds like ego. You know, does she wish to be with this guy who treated her like crap, you know, had sex with her once and then just ghosted her? No, she, I mean, I hope she isn't longing to be with him. She has a partner now. This person wants to be with her. Hopefully is a lovely person who gives her what, She's, you know, looking for mirrors her, whatever, but that this guy she doesn't care for and deems a bad person is on TV. That seems like what grabbing her isn't heartache. It's ego, right? I mean, 
Yeah, he made her feel bad and she wants to see him eternally punished and also doesn't allow right. for maybe he learned <laughs> and grew. Maybe he's more considerate and less callous a human being now than he was then. You know, people tend to, over time, stay the same. I kind of believe that Maya Angelou quote about believing people when they tell you who they are the first time. Yes. I, I thought it was also kind of funny that, you know, she says, here's this guy that she knows personally who's an actor who's a shitty person. Other people watching that show doesn't know, don't know that he's a shitty person. And yet she assumes that all the other actors that she, that he's performing with uh, are really cool people. Well, she hasn't dated yeah. all those people. She hasn't vetted them in the same way. They may be equally shitty to their romantic partners or have people in their past who are still mad about how they were treated. And that guy has people who see him as their little brother or their son or their, you know, best friend or the guy who, who comes and helps them move. Like, you know, he's not one thing to all people. She see, she had this experience with him and maybe he's grown. Maybe he hasn't, maybe for survival, she needs to think he hasn't or, um, you know, whatever it is. But yeah, in terms of like, and he's working with these cool people, you know, she doesn't know these people. It's kind of like, I remember Ted Koppel saying a theory he had years ago that he called the Vanna White theory. Remember, we're about the same age, I think. Remember yeah. when Vanna White, there was a whirlwind. She was did like a TV movie called like Venus and she had a book out and everyone was like, we love this woman that turns the letters on Wheel of Fortune. And what he, the theory was, was we like people that we're familiar with their faces, but who they are is totally abstract. And therefore we can put whatever we want them to be onto them. And politicians became kind of keen to this. And so they keep a very basic, uh, they would keep a very kind of bare bones persona and let people, constituents, you know, put whatever they need them to be onto them. Mm-hmm. This guy's too defined for her. She knows that he screwed her over. He, you know, whatever. Um, I want to use the the the, the PJ phrase here: professional jealousy. You said ego. She wanted to be yeah. an actor. He wanted to be an actor. He made it for now. He's acting now. Sounds like she's not uh, acting now. Maybe she'll take it back up again in the future and find success or has found a different kind of success that's equally gratifying. But on some level, she sees him on TV and think, this motherfucker, he was a shitty sex partner, a, a shitty not a boyfriend, but a shitty whatever he was. And how dare he succeed in this arena that I want to succeed in. I mean, we're all prone right. to that kind of green-eyed monster shit. So I'm not, I'm not bagging 100%. on, I'm not bagging on you, caller. I've certainly experienced professional jealousy in my own life as a writer, and so I get it. But it doesn't sound like, but when I do it, when I am pray to it, there's some self-awareness about it, and I try to check myself. Right. And it doesn't sound like the caller is quite there yet. But yeah, what is her part in this? Exactly, and also, yeah. Listen, she sounds like many actors, so she's kind of right on target. But at the <laughs> same time, to be a, I, I think, you know, what do I know? To be a, a great actor, a good actor, you have to be curious about human nature and what makes people make the decisions they make or behave in the way that they behave. And to even have some curiosity about, him the way he treated her what that was in him or what her part in it may have been 
in that dance between them or, you know, like to have no questions, but to need to define him as bad person is not really learning much about human interaction dynamics and all the things that, that make characters interesting, you know? <laughs> Hello, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I am a straight cisgender mother of a straight cisgender 14 year old boy. He recently broke up with his girlfriend who is also 14 during COVID times. They were limited to phone conversations and video calls. His ex-girlfriend called me because she wanted me to know why they broke up. Over the past month, he was asking her to take off her shirt at least twice per call. She was rightfully upset by these requests and gathered a few of her friends to confront him about the issue. He said he was only joking to defend himself. I am truly grateful to this girl who showed a lot of courage when faced with a challenging issue. I told her so and promised that I would be discussing this more with my son. He was embarrassed and could tell that his actions were not correct. I wanted him to understand this is not a way to interact with any person, particularly at his age, and mentioned the, um, how this kind of thing can be a crime. I wanted him to understand the gravity of the issue and the consequences for his actions. My question is, what kind of conversations can I have to prevent this kind of behavior in my son, who has a difficult time controlling his in impulses sometimes, while also helping him develop healthy habits of interacting with the opposite sex, especially in a technology-heavy era. Um, he's still embarrassed by conversations about sex, even the mention of it. I really need some guiding questions to direct him toward positive interactions. The last thing I want to do is raise a man who continues to perpetuate misogyny. I'm 100% down with wanting to raise a man, you know, your son to grow into a man who doesn't perpetuate misogyny but right now what you've got is a boy who wants to see his girlfriend's tits and you know <laughs> pressure is a problem coercion is a problem definitely address that but he's still going to want to see his girlfriend's tits and and obviously with kids those that age inappropriate no photos kids have gotten into all sorts of trouble uh swapping photographs uh and shitty kids with poor impulse control have engaged in revenge pornography have shared photographs that have spread through high schools and resulted in suicides. So I think there's a lot to talk about, but I hope, you know, my feeling listening to the call is I hope mom doesn't make the boy feel bad about desire, about being a straight boy, about wanting to see some tits, even if the way right. he went about trying to see these tits was really inappropriate and that needs to be addressed. Yeah. I mean, this one's really tough. I was, I, I, but I will say I was so impressed with, this uh, girl, this young woman uh, approaching his mom and, and his mom definitely must have given out vibes to her that she was approachable in that way. And like just that interaction is so impressive and that, you know, she, the, the girl knows that her mother loves her son and, you know, that it seems like it was dealt with with such care. And yeah, it's important that she doesn't shame him. It sounds like he she handled it very well. But I mean, this is why I'm just in awe of, of people with kids, because, you know, we grew up in a generation where it's like, oh, kids, we, you know, adults laughed at their feelings. Kids today are, are living real Hard, you know, not easy lives. And I don't think they ever did. It always bothered me when uh, parents would laugh at like teenage heartache because it's just as real as yours, maybe more. It's so much more like hormonal. And 
I, I'm not really making a point. I'm sorry, but <laughs> I, I, the whole thing to me is impressive. It's, there's so many moving parts. There's so many ways. I mean, I think Nora Ephron said the best something, a more eloquent version of like, you know, the best way, thing you can do to raise your kids is to raise them to earn enough money to pay, buy, you know, pay for therapy because you're <laughs> going to mess them up no matter what. I, I, I want to second you there. I do think that this, the call is really impressive and you picked up on something I didn't, that the the mom was clearly open enough uh, that the, the girlfriend thought that she could talk to the mom. Hopefully the girlfriend wasn't being vindictive. That's also a thing that happens. Sometimes people are shitty. But the girlfriend felt comfortable reaching out to the mom and didn't think the mom was just going to leap to her son's side. And so I think the mom should just keep doing what she's doing. Keep talking to your son. And yeah, those conversations with your kids about sex, your kids don't want to have those conversations and you have to make them. You have to force it. You have to force them to have that conversation. I always found it really helpful to say, we're going to have this talk whether you want to or not. And the, the more you stomp your feet and resist, the longer the talk has to go on. So let's just like have the talk and then it'll be over faster if you cooperate than if you resist. But don't make him feel bad for his desires. I don't want to see anybody yeah. at 14 shamed for their desires. What he did was wrong. What he wanted was not. Yeah, what he needs to learn is what he, and I don't know the answer to this, what he can do with that energy. Mm-hmm. Because energy is, you know, uh, what did they say? Neither uh, created nor destroyed. You know, so if he suppresses it, it's going to come out in another way. I, I loved that story on your podcast about energy being neither created nor destroyed and, and what you did with it in interaction with somebody. That yeah, you, oh, it's so neat. Yeah. It, everyone should listen to that. that. Everyone should listen to every episode, but that particular episode I found really inspiring. I think it's going to change the way uh, I move through the world because I think if somebody yelled at me in public, my impulse would not be to offer to buy them pot. But wouldn't it be nice to live in a world where every time you got into a conflict with somebody, the the, the response was, let me get you some pot. Yeah, my heart was pounding. I was scared of him. He was a big, scary man. But it was such a, I made such a cognitive decision. Like, I'm going to do this scientific Testing. It was, it was neat. Yeah. It was, science is cool. Can, can we throw one more question at you real quick? I know we've kept you. Yeah. I love it. It's so fun. Hi, Dan. I just have a simple question. Why do men like to spit on you when you're having sex? I don't understand it. Like, I know you didn't brush your teeth and it's gross, but he really likes it. And when I asked him why, he couldn't tell me. Oof. Can you kind of see if you can explain? Wow. Choking, spitting on people, people spitting in each other's mouths, uh, hopefully not now, not during the pandemic. These things weren't common when I was first becoming sexually active uh, longer ago than I care to mention. It seems to me that these things are common now because of porn. And we're both porn fans, but do we need to take, do we need to hold porn accountable for a world where men feel like it's sexy to spit on their partners? And a lot of people feel like it's sexy uh, to be spit on. Yeah, I don't blame porn. There's a lot of really, and of course this is subjective, really gross porn out there that I just can't, I gag to look at. But everyone's got their thing. I mean, the the, the odd thing I find is her question is so absolute. Why do men like to spit on you during sex? I would maybe question the pattern of men you are partnering with. 
more and how that happens and what that pattern is. (laughs) She may be making assumptions about all men based on two or three short straws. Yeah. Men who are turned on by what? Degradation, you know? And listen, I get it in terms of I like to be spanked hard and talked real like demeaning dirty too, but only it only works for me if I know he's doing it because I like it. <laughs> like if he was doing it because he liked it, I don't think I'd like it as much. You know, it's kind of like a mustache. I love a man in a mustache, but only if he grows it for me, not like because he's a mustache guy. But is it okay, you know? is it okay mean, if he likes it too? Yeah. Yes, of course. He has to like it too. It can't be, you know, totally turned off, but that it's, I like a guy who's turned on because I'm turned on. I know that I get turned on when he's turned on, you know, like that's the kind of thing that is at the root of it. I believe, Mm -hmm. you know, of course I have my fucked up things. I like, like getting smacked, you know, on on the tush, not the face, but, but I, I don't, I choose to not look into it because uh, I like it and it works for me and it's just on, you know, it doesn't hurt me. So the, the takeaway for the, maybe the advice for the caller would be, and she's wondering why men do this. The question she needs to ask herself is, does she like it? And if she doesn't, tell him to stop it. Yes, yes. And if that doesn't work for him, then maybe you should be friends. You know, he probably doesn't spit on his friends. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah Silverman, thank you so much for coming back on my, my dumb podcast. And congratulations uh, on launching yours during the during the pandemic. It, it's terrific. I, I've just really enjoyed it. It's been a good companion for me on the uh, this this oh. side of the pandemic since I started listening a, a couple months ago. And congratulations. Thank, and thank you. you for coming on. Uh, thank you so much. I love coming on. Hey, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old pansexual this lady calling because I am baby crazy. (laughs) I have been with my partner for about three and a half years and just like really, really have always wanted a kid watching birth videos and reading books. Like I'm pretty, you know, pretty far into it. And my partner is just not totally sure if he wants kids. He says like, He's 60% yes, 40% no. And then he'll talk about like, yeah, okay, if we're together, like way down the line, sure, I'll give you kids. The issue is that he's in a PhD program for the next, you know, five or so years. And he says if we're you know, together by the end of the PhD at age like 34 for me, <laughs> he would consider having a baby. My dilemma is that I don't know if I'm ready for that timeline. I would like to have a baby sooner. And I know, you know, there can be issues with conception and if I want to have a second one, it just kind of pushes my, you know, my my body and everything back a bit. But he says he wants to wait because he just, you know, he's so busy and stuff like that. So I am wondering how you think I should bring this up with him um in the past i've had like an urgency around it that's like you need to tell me if we're gonna have kids or not like (laughs) i'm afraid you're not telling me you don't want them because you don't want me to leave you and i just think i need to reframe it in a more positive way but i'm not really able to find the words on how to do that so that's one question and then you know what do you think about the timeline am i being unreasonable with this. Are you being reasonable? 
or are you being unreasonable? Well, I think it's perfectly reasonable three and a half years into a relationship to want some clarity from your partner about whether or not he wants to have a baby with you. I also think it's perfectly reasonable at 29 to want to have a baby, to want to have a baby with the person you've been with for three and a half years and sounds like you hope to be with for the rest of your life. Perfectly reasonable. It's also perfectly reasonable of him to say, as I go into this PhD program for the next four years or five years, I'm not going to have the time or the emotional bandwidth or energy to be a full-time or even part-time parent. So it's perfectly reasonable for him to say, yeah, not now. At the end of this program, then I will be ready to parent. But that's not what he's saying. He's not saying at the end of this program, when I have my PhD, then we can have a baby. He's saying he's 60-40, 60% for it, 40% against it. And it is something that he will consider after he finishes his PhD program, after he gets his PhD. So what does that mean? That's where you need to get a little clarity from him, a little more clarity from him. When he says after he finishes his PhD, then he will consider it, how long do those talks go on? How long does he plan to take it into consideration? Is that the beginning of the conversation that may come down on the side of, yeah, no, he doesn't want a baby? And then you're 34 when you begin having those talks, when consideration starts, and 38 when he's done considering it and has concluded that no, indeed, after all these years of consideration, after giving you the consideration he promised you five years ago, he has decided that he doesn't want a baby. That's where you need some clarity. You know, if I were in your shoes and someone was telling me that they were 60-40 pro-con on having a baby – and having the baby that you would like to have now is something that they will consider, not commit to, but consider five years in the future. Yeah, I wouldn't take that as a really good sign that this person wanted to have a baby with me. I would take that as a sign, as a likelier sign that this person was telling me what they thought I wanted to hear and needed to hear right now as you suspect, as you worry, to stay in this relationship. So, yeah, you're 29 years old. You're still young. A lot of people are having babies in their late 20s, early 30s. If you wanted to have a baby on your own, you could make that happen. If you wanted to have a baby with a new partner, well, then you're faced with the challenge of getting out there, starting over and finding a guy who wants a baby as badly and as promptly as you do. Only you can make the decision about what you want to risk. The risk of getting out there, being single again, looking for somebody who wants to have a baby and perhaps not finding that person for five years, for the same five years that this guy needs to finish his PhD or sticking around for five years while this guy finishes his PhD and then being told at the end of that process after he begins to take the baby into consideration that he doesn't want to have that child. It's a tough spot to be in. Those are two difficult choices. You're in a better position to know whether he's worth the risk, whether you love him enough and want to be with him enough that you're willing to hang in there. But I would, in your shoes, now demand a commitment from him, not to consider a baby in five years, but to have a baby in five years. That's, of course, a promise he can back out of in five years. But if you're going to stick around, at the very least, you want that promise. And if he can't give it to you, if it's more 60-40 shit, more we'll take it into consideration – then you might want to get out of there and go find a guy who wants a baby yesterday, just like you do.
Hi, Dan. I'm a 45-year-old bi woman, and I'd really like your advice about whether a situation is a red flag. I'm in a relationship with a guy, and it's a non-monogamous relationship, although definitely the pandemic has put a damper on seeing other people these days. A while back, he actually invited one of his buddies over for a male-female-male threesome, and it was insanely hot. I really enjoyed it. Afterwards, he predicted that his buddy would probably reach out and try to see me independently. So he correctly predicted that this other guy would reach out, and he did. But then my partner got really upset and basically said that it was, even though he could predict it, it was really disrespectful, and he asked me to never see that friend of his. I told him that that was kind of unfair, and I didn't really appreciate him telling me who I could see or not see. And so now it's a big thing. That was a while back. It settled down for a while, and then we had an argument over something, and then he ended up reaching out to this guy to say that he should contact me again, and then the very next day told me to, again, promise never to see him. Part of me doesn't really care about seeing this guy, but I just really don't appreciate being told what to do and who to see. And there's a little bit, a part of me that's worried that he's being manipulative and controlling. And if that's the case, I just want to end it. Is this a part of a pattern? Are there other examples of manipulative or controlling behaviors that he's engaged in? Or is this just a weird hang-up or insecurity he has about this particular guy? If it's about this particular guy and you're not that interested in seeing this guy again, but it's just the principle of the thing, talk to him about that. Talk to your boyfriend about not bringing into your bed anybody that he doesn't want you to see again on your own. Talk about the kind of open relationship you have or the kind of open relationship you want to have. There are some people, some couples with open relationships where both partners have a veto, where they can rule people out. Now, you're generally free to sleep with whoever you want, but your partner can say, not that person. They used to date my ex. Not that person. We used to work together and they were very rude to me. Not that person. She's my sister. Where people have a veto, where you're not absolutely free to see and fuck whoever you want. You have to take your partner's feelings into consideration and one of the ways you demonstrate that your partner's feelings are important to you is by giving them that veto power. If that's not the kind of open relationship that you want, if your partner exercising that kind of veto seems controlling or limiting or indeed manipulative, then make that clear to your partner that he's not allowed to dictate to you around who you sleep with, who you see, who you hang out with. If you can't come to terms – if one of you isn't willing to pay the price of admission, then you may need to end this relationship. But I don't want to hang the abuser labels on your boyfriend. I don't want to call him manipulative or controlling based on this one example. 
if, again, it is part of a pattern of manipulative, gaslighty, controlling behaviors, definitely end the relationship. If he's just insecure about the size of this guy's dick or his sexual prowess or they have some history together that makes him feel a little threatened by the thought of you two getting together alone, he needs to recognize that it was a mistake to get you two together at all considering he correctly predicted that if it went well, he would reach out to you, that he would go through back channels to try to get back into your pants. And so it was a bad idea to set this up. It was a bad idea to have this three-way, knowing what he knew about his friend and knowing what he knows now about you, that you don't like being told who you can and can't see. Therefore, he shouldn't bring anyone into your orbit particularly into your bed that he wants to then exercise this kind of veto power over. Before we get to response calls, let's read your tweets. At Vince under the stars tweets, listening to the Savage Lovecast about the girl whose friend revealed a secret on a different podcast. How about she casually brings up in small talk the fact that she listens to that podcast? Maybe she tells a little white lie that she's catching up on it so she doesn't put her friend on the spot. Maybe that's some good advice. I don't know if I haven't heard your secret yet, but I soon will is better than I heard your secret. But maybe it is. At Brig B123 tweets, literally laughed out loud during the Savage Lovecast when the voyeur admitted to being hypocritical. And I'm not even a Republican. Glad I'm not the only one who links the two. Thanks for the laughs every week at Fake Dan Savage. You are welcome at Brig B123. And finally, about my response to the bouncer who noticed, pre-pandemic, that a lot of guys who came to his club were carrying their girlfriend's IDs in their wallets and who thought there might be something sexist or creepy or worse going on. At Alicia KB tweets, my husband carried my ID in his wallet back in the day because I didn't want to carry a purse just like at fake Dan Savage said. Nothing sexist or creepy about it. But another listener at Crafty Chicana pointed out that the lack of pockets in women's garments is itself a sexist issue. I think Alicia and Crafty are both right. There's nothing creepy going on with these couples. There is definitely something very creepy and very sexist going on with the culture. And that sexist creepiness exists upstream of the couples the bouncer was carding. The takeaway here, cargo shorts are for everybody. Okay, thanks to everyone who posts about the show to your social media accounts. We do appreciate it. And if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the Savage Lovecast hashtag. And now your response calls. Hi, this is a comment for the girl who was stressing about um, the friend who was texting her good morning and good night every single day. I would um, highly recommend that you call that person. There is so much that can be gotten from having a phone call rather than a text message. We tend to just infer all of these meetings and like guess at people's intentions when we are texting back and forth. But, you know, almost guarantee that if you just gave that friend a quick phone call and said, hey, are these text messages really important to you? Is there some other kind of something that you're getting out of them? Because this is how they occur for me. Um, Having that conversation will, A, be a lot quicker over the phone than it will over text message. I know for me, the agony of waiting for a text response is terrible. And so it'll get it over a lot quicker and you will have a much better connection and a much better chance at sustaining the connection that you really want with that friend. So phone call, phone call, phone call. 
Hello, this is for the person who said that they got really gassy after having anal sex. I've got a tip for relieving gas. So if you stick your thumb out like you're doing a thumbs up and then you press your thumb into your lower belly, a bit below your belly button, quite firmly for maybe 10 seconds, then generally I find in a few minutes time, the gas that might have been like stuck in your system that you weren't able to get out can kind of move through. And um, yeah, it's really helped me when I've been gassy. Hi, Dan. This is in response to the sex success story on episode 738 from a pompous math teacher. Uh, the guy on the call talked about the butt plug he is using and referred to it first as having six inch in girth and later as having six inch in radius. Since six inches girth, six inches diameter and six inches radius are very different measurements. I guess he was right the first time he talked about girth. He might even have been talking about diameter, but I'm fairly certain he did not mean radius. For comparison, a butt plug with a 6-inch girth will be not quite, but about about as thick as a regular 12-ounce can of beer. Thicker than pretty much any dick I have ever seen, except maybe once or twice in porn. But I think most people with some practice and some patience and a ton of loop can manage to accommodate something like that. A butt plug with a 6-inch diameter will be as thick as a dollar bill is long. I have not seen that many sex toys that thick, but I think someone with a lot of commitment can work their way up to that. A butt plug with a 6-inch radius would be as thick as a medium pizza is wide in most pizza parlors. I have been in the kink scene for a long time. I have seen people put crazy stuff on their orifices, but I have never, ever seen somebody put something even close to that thick. Probably there are a few people in the world capable of proving me wrong, but I doubt anybody can accommodate something that thick without doing serious harm to themselves. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Tickets are on sale now for Hump 2021 with all new films. We can't watch My Dirty Little Film Festival in theaters this year, but filmmakers have graciously agreed to let us stream their films online. And this year, there are a variety of viewing parties to join, including one with Hump Filmmakers and one with me on opening night where we can watch the films together. Go to humpfilmfest.com to look at the variety of dates, times, and viewing parties. There's also still time to make a film for this year's festival. The deadline for submissions is January 8th, so just a few more weeks to grab your friends and lovers that are in your pod and make some homemade dirty movies. Go to humpfilmfest.com slash submit to find out all about it. And this holiday season, give the gift of the Magnum. It's twice as long, more guests, more questions, and no ads. Go to savagelovecast.com and click on gift. Please note the subscription goes out right away when you buy it. So if you want it to arrive on December 25th for some mysterious reason, buy it on December 25th. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Sarah Silverman on Twitter at Sarah K. Silverman. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.